This Dharma talk by John Sutherland Roshi, Gates II, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on November 6, 2008. Last week I was talking about a koan, and I want to say a little bit more about it tonight. It's um, Yunmen, one of the old Chinese teachers, who said, uh, within the, the whole world, in the vast cosmos, there is a treasure hidden inside your body. It takes up the lantern and walks toward the Buddha Hall. It puts, it takes the mountain gate and puts it on the lantern. So, um, just really quickly to, to touch on what we talked about last week, here is this image of the way that there's a contrast between the bigness of everything. Within the vast cosmos, in your body, there is a treasure that connects you to that vast cosmos. And by some mysterious process, that bit of the vastness that you carry inside of you picks up a lantern and takes you to the Buddha Hall. So lights the way and takes you to the Buddha Hall, which is not some special spiritual destination, but is in fact the world itself. Your, your life, the things of your day, are the Buddha Hall. And then there's the somewhat mysterious bit about it takes the mountain gate and puts it on top of the lantern. The mountain gate was the gate that was the entrance to the old Chinese monasteries and was huge. So it was really a building with openings in it that functioned as gates. And often above the, um, the openings there was a gallery and in the gallery were uh, statues of bodhisattvas and portraits and sometimes the mummified remains of previous teachers of the temple. So you've got the ancestors, you know, up in this gallery above the gate. Uh, human ancestors and spirit ancestors as well. So this is the gate that gets put on the lantern. And we talked about how what, what an arresting image that is to think that we have this gate placed before us that we can walk through at any moment. It's right there. The gate isn't in the situation. We walk through the gate to enter the situation in a real way. And one of the images um, I, I brought up, which seemed to resonate with a lot of people because it's come up a bunch since then, is of uh, I, the, the emperor who unified China 2,200 years ago who had a slightly paranoid streak. And so there was a gate that you had to pass through in order to come into his presence, and that gate was made out of lodestone, which is magnetic. And so if you were carrying any weapons of metal on you, they would go like, and, and get stuck on the gate as you pass through. So that image of the lodestone gate that kind of pulls out you know, our, our, our weapons and our shields and all the things that we carry into a situation and purifies us in some way, struck a, struck a chord with a lot of people. And then we enter the situation minus all of the apparatus that's now sticking to the lodestone gate. Um, so I wanted to talk a little, just a little bit more about the nature of that gate. And one of the things I'd really encourage you to do when we take up a koan 
is to the extent that you can, imagine yourself into the original circumstances of the koan. Sometimes we can sort of tend to see them as though they appear as sky writing or something, you know, that they just sort of appear floating in the sky, not related to anything. But they had a time and a place. They had, they were embodied as well. So Yun Men was speaking to a group that would have been made up largely of monastics, and monastics in 9th century China were people who, first of all, by virtue of being monastics, had left home life behind, you know, decisively. They had left their homes. And because there were not a whole ton of great training temples in China at the time, they probably also had come a long way in order to be where they were. Um, They might be dozens or hundreds or even a thousand miles away from their birthplace at this temple. And they were devoting their lives to a tradition that was still seen in China as somewhat foreign and a little bit suspect. So this is a group of people who have a kind of uprooted quality about them. They've left their homes, they're away from their native landscapes, their native places, and they've entered this slightly um, dodgy community that wasn't quite accepted by the mainstream society. So that's who he's speaking to. And if he's speaking to these people who are uprooted in this way, and saying, you're not alone. The ancestors are right there in the gate that's right in front of you. It's speaking to us in the same way as well. So when we're feeling uprooted in our lives, in whatever ways that happens, there's another koan that begins, I am Ching Shui, alone and destitute. Please give me alms. And I think we all know that place. You know, we all know being Jing Shui, alone and destitute, begging for help. So when we're feeling uprooted like that, uh, by illness, by exile, by being far away from home, in whatever you know ways we mean that, both psychically as well as, as physically, um, we have this gate that's right there in front of us all the time that we make with our practice, um, with the blessings of the ancestors as we do that. And we have the promise that should we do the work that allows us to pass through that gate, what we will find on the other side is what the old ancestors called intimate. We will find that quality of realization that is becoming intimate wherever we are, not dependent on circumstances, not dependent on being at home, even in the times when we're feeling uprooted or off balance, there is the gate and there is the possibility of passing through the gate and becoming intimate. So, I want to talk about the ways in which we do that in this practice in in some kind of concrete ways because I think it's really important to touch in on that every once in a while. Uh, and when we, um, when we do that, I, I think it might be helpful to use a formulation that, that came up in the Koan Salon yesterday 
about the wind being both eternal and reaching everywhere. And the idea that you might understand that it's eternal, but you might not yet understand that it reaches everywhere. And what are those two aspects? It's the same wind, but, but it has an eternal face and it has a reaching everywhere, touching every skin quality as well. So the gate, in the same way, has two aspects. And one we might kind of associate with the eternal aspect of things. And I'm going to talk in a way that's artificially pure, because one of the things I most love about this tradition is that it's gotten very busy mixing things up and making them impure. Um, and I think that's really important. So forgive me for kind of making things for, for, for a minute for the sake of description purer than they actually are. So there's this um, eternal aspect of the gate. And um, there is also the reaching everywhere aspect. And we work with koans in largely two different ways because the two ways we work with koans tend to make one aspect of the other or the other more visible to us, more apparent, um, and give us a way to work with that aspect. And here's, here's what I mean by that. The mythology of spiritual life is that there's this big experience you have called enlightenment, and it happens, and then everything's fine, and that's everybody lives happily ever after, and that's the story. But that's so not the story. And um, so what I want to do is I want to propose a different kind of way of thinking about it, which is that we are all walking toward the Buddha Hall, lit by this lantern, and that walk is awakening. And awakening begins the moment we first draw breath and lasts until the moment we last draw breath in this life. It's something that happens throughout our lives and um, is sometimes punctuated by these moments of breakthrough which happen in, in, not just in spiritual practice, but in other ways as well. But the breakthroughs are just part of the process of awakening, a tremendously important part, but not the goal and not the most important thing, part of it. So we have, um, we've gone around a lot about the self, what is the self, and how, where do we locate it, and what is it like, and all of that. And something I wanted to propose was that we put down the idea of the self as the thing that's continuous in our lives, and just take up the idea of awakening as the thing that's continuous in your life. That the thread, the through line of your life, isn't this self that we construct and deconstruct all the time, but is this process of awakening from first breath to last breath. Because the moments of breakthrough, the times of breakthrough, which can happen one or many, many times in different degrees in a life, are important, koan practice used to be focused almost exclusively on making them happen. That was the point. Um, in my ancestral line in Japan, there was a sign in Japanese in the meditation hall that said, 
the purpose of session is kensho. The purpose of a retreat is breakthrough, is awakening. And um, the, the hall in Kamakura was called the Kensho Factory. Um, so it was a very single-minded focus on ma- having this event occur. And what might be kind of surprising to you is if I tell you it's not that hard to do. You know, it, the, it, it's quite possible to have that be a sort of widespread general occurrence. Um, to, in order to do that, you take up one koan and you stay with it for usually a long time. Sometimes it can be a matter of hours, but more likely it's a matter of months or even years. And you have a monogamous relationship with that koan. That's what you do. Uh, the, the most famous first koan is Jiaozhou's No. Someone asked Jiaozhou, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Jiaozhou replied, No. And the koan question is, what is this No? And since we know that dogs do have Buddha nature, it's, it can't be that. It can't be like a, it can't have its usual logical meaning. So what is it? And you meditate with no, and you live with no, and you carry no around with you all the time, and you be, you have what's called the great iron ball of doubt that lodges in your throat, you know, and you go through all of this kind of stuff, and you stay with it as long as it takes, and at some point hours or days or weeks or months or years down the road, if you and Mu, what used to be called Mu, we call no, because that's what it means, become one, um, then you have this experience of breakthrough. So the thing that's really important to notice about that is that that's the first koan. (laughs) That's not the last koan. That's the first one. And after that, in my tradition, come 749 other koans. That's really important because that's saying, like, okay, good job, now, you know, now we get down to the really important stuff, which is making the stuff alive in your life, is, is realizing it in your life. And that's what the next 749 koans do. Initially, they show you where in this opening the light has shone very brightly and you can see and where it is still shaded and you need to do more work. And then it tosses you around between form and emptiness for a while. And then it begins this um, long process of integration where it's not special anymore and it doesn't leak away anymore, which is what happens usually with an opening when you don't do this work with it. It just, over time, just kind of leaks away and remains this um, powerful and poignant memory of something that felt really important. So that's one way of coming through the gate, and that's that's called um, seeing through the gate of no. And there's another way, which we do all the time here and in the Koan Salon, and in our work together in other ways, which is that we um, we don't stick with one koan as a first koan, but we take up one koan at one time and another at another and we look at them together and we move from koan to koan to koan. And um, it'll surprise you to know that that the way I trained, you didn't do that. You know, you, t- you held the first koan and then you did all these other koans afterwards. But that began to feel to some of us as though there, were this, there was this great treasure house with a a padlock on it. And what we were saying to people was, sit there until you make the key. 
you know, and you don't get to you don't get to play until you make the key. And that just came to feel ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you do that? You know, why would you lock the treasure of the of the house away like that? So we opened it up, and indeed uh, found that um, being able to work with koans like that is also tremendously powerful. And that's the reaching everywhere. That's where we take the koans into our lives and bring all of our lives to the koans. And we begin to feel um, the way they change us, the way they change us in our everyday lives by, um, by taking them up and staying with them. And sometimes when we do that, you know, I'll watch a koan really grab hold of someone and it will become very much like a first koan for someone and have a lot of the same qualities. So in this way, we have a different kind of opening. Instead of having an opening that's the result of a tremendous amount of pressure being applied so that things sort of crack open, instead of having that kind of lightning bolt opening, we have an opening that's more like um, the dawn, where the light comes up slowly, the sky lightens slowly, and it's almost only later that looking back, you can see that the sky has grown light. That's also beautiful, you know. That's also tremendously beautiful, and in some ways um, more helpful, because in doing the... um, polytheistic koan work and working with a lot of different koans and really working with them in our lives we do what we call the bucket work we do the work that makes a strong container so that when openings happen we can we have something to hold on to them with instead of having them sort of zap through us like lightning and disappear into the ground because we've got nothing for them to 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 be held by so i'm talking about these in, in, in a way, as I said, that's too pure because it's actually much more mixed up than that. And most of the people who are working in this way are doing aspects of both, are doing both. And that's great. That's tremendous to be having both things going on at once. Um, and so there's a way in which that that moment of getting a glimpse through the gate of no is like seeing the emptiness of everything all at once. And that's why it's such a big experience, because it's like, you know, it's everywhere. It is eternal. There's nothing left out. You see the emptiness of the whole thing in one big shot. But when we have the more domestic, local moments um, of seeing the emptiness of things, as we did on the Koan retreat this weekend, or... Um, maybe some of you have begun to have the experience where there's a kind of habitual tangle you get in with somebody and you find yourself starting to tell the story, you know, about the habitual tangle, she always and I never and blah, blah, blah. And you can't do it. It's like you can't even make it up anymore. And you, ju- and you get a couple of sentences in and you just stop. And sometimes you laugh. You know, sometimes it just dissolves into laughter. It's just not possible to believe anymore in that story that's also seeing the emptiness it's just it's seeing a particular emptiness um, but the, but it's exactly the same as that uh, breakthrough moment of seeing the emptiness of everything it's just more local so that's going on all the time we don't have to wait you know for some promise down the road that's happening right now 
we talked over the weekend about being sort of tilted, letting the poems tilt us. And that's, um, that's awakening right in that moment when we let something surprise us and push us over and we start to fall freely for a moment. We let the rug be pulled out from underneath us for a moment and we fall freely. That moment of falling freely is exactly the same moment as happens in a, in a big breakthrough. So it's our willingness to not try to right ourselves too quickly but to allow ourselves to fall over and over and over again in the small moments that lets that um, dawn sky lighten over time. Um, and maybe I'll just close with um, one of my favorite stories about this. Several years ago, there was a documentary that was really popular in Northern California, where I come from, called The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. Did you see that? And um, there was an eccentric and lovely man named Mark Bittner who uh, was living near this colony of wild parrots who lived in this particular neighborhood in San Francisco. No one was quite sure where they'd come from. Maybe a, a truck had overturned and opened up and the original parrots had flown free. Anyway, they, um, they, were, they were fruitful and multiplied and became this large colony of wild, wild parrots, and he became kind of their guardian and caretaker. And then at a certain point, long story short, he had to leave the neighborhood and then decided he wanted to write a book about the parrots, and so someone gave him a little, little cottage back near where the parrots were, but not quite right there. So he hunkered down in the cottage and started to write this book about the parrots, and it was all about you know, how much he loved them and how special they were and what a tremendous experience he'd had with them. And after a couple of days, they actually found him. And so the parrots all came swooping over and they were beating their wings against the windows, you know, and pecking at, pecking at the window and squawking and making this tremendous ruckus. And so he would be writing about how fantastic the parrots were and how deep his love for them was, and then he'd have to get up and shoo them away because <laughs> they were making so much noise, you know. And... Um, you know, he tells the story ruefully, and there's something so important there about about spiritual life. You know, that that we think it's something about like getting still and getting concentrated and getting focused. You know, and we shouldn't let anything disturb us. And meanwhile, the wild parrots of awakening are like beating their wings against mm-hmm. the window and squawking and calling to us, calling to us. You know, pay attention, pay attention. So, in this. Um, impure way that we're walking on together. We value both of those things. We value the silence and the concentration and the going deep. And we value the brilliant colored feathers and the, and the songs of the parrots as well. And we don't have to choose one or the other. Um, the stillness and the concentration are tremendously important. They're necessary but not sufficient. It's not enough. It's just a technique. And sometimes we can, um, we can um, mistake the technique for the goal. We can think that the goal is to get concentrated and still. But it's just a technique. And it's no more or less important than the technique of being able to walk out among the parrots and instead of showing them away, saying from the bottom of our hearts, there is nothing I dislike and being able to be completely in that moment.
So I'll stop there because I, I want to leave some time for questions and comments that you might have uh, about this. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.